Welcome to the November 7th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 19, verses 30 through 42, and the sermon is entitled, The Aftermath of the Cross, delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. Get your Bible out, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 19 today. If you are new to us, visiting with us, we have been through a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. Uh, It has truly been a blessing to me to study this Gospel through. I have read it all of my life, and yet the Lord has opened so many pathways of truth to me through this study that we've been through over this last uh, number of months, over a year now, but we're getting close. The light is at the end of the tunnel now. We're getting close to the end of the study. But we are grateful to be together in God's house, in God's timing on this first day of the week that we study His Word and open it together. Uh, As we move ahead in this journey through the Gospel of John, if you give the Gospel a simple, quick reading, you will see the great truth of John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And you realize that it's not just the world in general, but the world of people one by one, heart by heart. He loves every single one of us. If you've tuned in to us today, if you're here in the house, he loves every single one of us with agape love. You will notice the miracle that happened to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 as she meets the Lord Jesus and then goes into the town and the first act of her life in, upon meeting Jesus is to introduce him to other people. That guides us in understanding the gospel. We note the miracle that happened uh, of healing and blessing over and over again throughout the gospel of John. You remember Jesus walking on the water, John chapter 6. You cannot forget Jesus healing this woman that is caught in an act of deep, deep sin in John chapter 8. Or the raising of Lazarus to new life in John chapter 11. We learn that Jesus is the good shepherd. We learn that he is the doorway to life in the gospel of John. It's a wonderful account of the life of Jesus Christ. And John tells us, if I were to write down everything that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. So this is a look at Jesus' life and the high water marks of his ministry. But all of those pictures in the gospel are designed to stick in our mind. That we never forget them. Once we read them, once we hear them, we can never lose them again. As the Lord God speaks to us through the gospel. But as you get deeper and deeper into the gospel, you realize that all of these pictures that you see in the gospel of John combine together to show how Jesus loves me. And how Jesus loves you as his creation He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you no matter the shade of your skin or the nation of your your home. It does not matter where you are, who you are, the Lord loves you. And that's what the Gospel of John does so well in teaching us. We realize our sin is as deep and as awful as the accounts in the Gospel. But we also remember that our forgiveness through Christ is as miraculous as any miracle that we see in the Gospel of John. You and I being saved by grace through our faith is a sheer miracle of God. Amen? 
And that miracle is available to any single person in the world coming to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And our walk with Him requires total surrender and total unyielding uh, life, giving grace to Him, giving blessing to Him in the way that we live. So God is not simply entertaining us with these stories that we are going through, but rather He is seriously calling us to give every ounce of everything we have in surrender to Him as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God, as our King. He deserves our honor, our respect, our fear. He deserves our surrender and our love to Him. Now, last week, last sermon that I preached, we studied John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. Jesus' death on the cross. I walk away from the pulpit every time preaching those words and even what I'm preaching today feeling insufficient to the message because I don't know that human words can completely encompass what Jesus did for us through the old rugged cross. And yet we know these words touch our hearts. But today we're going to go to the aftermath of the cross. What happened as Jesus died on the cross? This is sermon number 61 in the series through the Gospel of John. There are 66 sermons as we come to the conclusion of the Gospel of John. Today is number 61. We're going to look at John chapter 19, verses 30 through 42. Open your Bible with me. If you're streaming with us or you're with an FM signal, get your Bible out. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Go to verse 30, and we're going to conclude this chapter today. Here's the word, inspired by God, inerrant, without error, given through the pen of the disciple John. John 19, go to verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred-pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, 
which never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious, holy, mighty word. The time is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus had been mounted on the cross at 9 a.m., and he had hung there in agony for six hours. I want you to take deep note of this. In the hours before the cross, before he was mounted to the cross, Jesus had to endure trials. He endured a scourging in which he lost most of the blood of his body. He endured a crown of thorns, emotional battery. He had to bear the top piece of his cross toward where he was going to be crucified. So Jesus, the Son of God, in human flesh, God incarnate, Son of Man, lost a huge amount of blood and strength even prior to being mounted on the old rugged cross. And then for six grueling hours, he was nearly naked, exposed to the elements, dealing with excruciating pain, humanly progressing toward death. And yet, I want you to look at John 19, verse 30, once again, the verse I started with. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I want you to remember this always. If you need to write it in your Bible, do this. But in all of the crucifixion process, Jesus Christ never lost control. He held the reins of control throughout the process of crucifixion. The cross, the scourging, the punishment did not kill him. But rather, Jesus himself decided when he was going to give up his spirit, when he was going to give up the ghost to death. And he spoke the word in Aramaic, tetelestai, it is finished, one word. And the work of salvation was then complete. The moment that he gave up his spirit, the, the process of our salvation is complete. When he bowed his head in death, he bowed it as his chosen moment. He decided when he was going to die. It wasn't because of Jewish leaders. It wasn't because of the government. It was not because of soldiers who had put him on the cross. But he died because his job was done. He had fulfilled our salvation. Now, I want you to remember that this is the Friday before the high, holy Sabbath day of Passover. Now, Sabbath always begins on Friday. Every week, Sabbath began on Friday at 6 o'clock in the evening. But this was a high, holy day. This was a high Sabbath because this was Passover weekend. So it's a very special high, holy day of Sabbath beginning at 6 o'clock in the evening on Friday. It is now 3 o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus passes away on the old rugged cross. So in the next three hours, as Sabbath approaches, all work has to be completed. Everything has to cease in the way of activity as Sabbath begins, including the work of crucifixion and including the work of dealing with dead bodies. They had to be disposed of before Sabbath actually began. 
So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Jewish priests and the Pharisees begin to get antsy. They want Jesus dead before 6 o'clock in the evening. If Jesus lingers on in death, these religious men would not be able to lead in worship. Now think of the irony of that. If the Son of God doesn't die before 6 o'clock, we're not going to be able to worship together. The very Lamb of God on the old rugged cross, and they're worrying about their religious services. We're not going to be able to lead if he doesn't die. There's a cruelty in that. I want you to think about that. But they began pestering the Roman governor, Pilate. Of course, Pilate had handed down the death sentence to Jesus. He had fallen into the crowd's pressure, and he knew he was killing an innocent man. Pilate knew that he sent an innocent man to the old rugged cross, and yet he did because the crowd pressed him to do that. And now the crowd, led by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, were pressing him to break the criminal's legs, including the legs of Jesus, so they would all die immediately. Oh, governor, have the criminal's legs broken now. Hasten their death so we can go on with our worship service. Pilate had given in to killing Jesus. Now he was going to give in to breaking legs. Now, a key factor of death on a cross is that the criminal could barely breathe. The sagging weight of his body on the cross compressed his lungs so that he could not breathe. And the only way to breathe was to press up with his legs so that he could grasp a breath of air as your lungs expand. But the problem is, as you press up with those legs, you're pressing against the spike that is through your feet. So breathing is excruciating. So when they break the criminal's legs, they have no ability to press upward anymore, and so they die very quickly of asphyxiation. They cannot breathe anymore. It was sheer agony to endure the cross. It was agony to watch the cross. But breaking the legs quickened death. So the soldiers get the order from Pilate, and they break the legs of the two criminals on either side of Jesus, and they quickly die because they cannot get their breath anymore. But they come to Jesus, and they did not fulfill Pilate's order. Why? Because they noted that he was already dead. There was no reason to break his legs. He had already died. Well, let me ask you this. When did God plan or ordain that he was going to use the cross to save us? When did that happen? Write this reference down. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Let me read that to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God planned for our forgiveness before he spoke, let there be light. God planned to save his human creation before he put creation together. That's an amazing truth to me. And as he composes his holy word, he shows us the cross throughout the Word of God, because the cross is foreordained as that instrument that's going to bring us salvation by His Son dying on that instrument of death. The cross is throughout the Bible. When those soldiers did not break Jesus' legs, it fulfilled what God Almighty had already foretold. John tells us that in John 
19.36. Look at that verse, John 19.36. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. That is a quote of Psalm 34, verse 20. It's a psalm of David written a thousand years before the cross. And yet God foreordains in his very perfect and errant word that Jesus' legs would not be broken the day of the cross 1,000 years ahead when David pens that psalm. What an amazing truth that the Bible holds hands with itself throughout, giving us the truth of God from the beginning page to the final page. God knows what's going to happen in the way that we are going to be saved. And yet, even though the soldiers did not break Jesus' legs, they still assured of Jesus' death by plunging a spear just beneath his rib cage and would pass through his abdomen, it would pass through his lungs, it would probably pierce his heart. And in that moment that he was pierced, out of Jesus' body flowed blood and water. Physically, his blood had been still long enough in death that the red cells were separating from the plasma of his blood. So out of his body pours blood and water. John 19.37, John the disciple says this act fulfills a prophecy of God. Write this down. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. A prophecy of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this. And I will pour upon the house of David... And upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The only begotten Son of God, mounted on the old rugged cross, pierced and foretold in the prophecy of God in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Symbolically, I believe that John the disciple, the gospel writer, includes that fact to remind us that bloodshed takes care of forgiveness of sin. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Blood must be shed in order for sin to be forgiven. But also then we realize that water washes away the stain of sin. Yes, Jesus not only forgives us of sin, but he also washes away the guilt of our sin. When we belong to him, we are clean before him. Praise God. We are clean before him. The blood is shed. The water washes us as we are clean before God. Our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So here we have the scene that time is slipping away. A dead Savior is mounted on the old rugged cross, pierced, blood and water pouring from a wound of a dead man. But six o'clock is coming. Something had to be done with Jesus' body. If the Roman government had been in control of disposing of Jesus' body, they could have very simply taken it down and thrown it on a trash heap. That could be very probable what happened to the other two criminals beside Jesus. The Roman government simply disposed of the body, however that was easiest. And yet, two men step up. First man steps up is Joseph of Arimathea. 
He was a rich resident of Jerusalem. He was a primary leader in the council of the Jews. But he was also secretly, if you notice, it says in Scripture that he was under the radar a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he loves the Lord. So much so that in this moment he steps out of the shadows and becomes a public figure and asks for the body of Jesus. John 19, 38, he's called a disciple, a saved follower, and he makes this very bold move. He approaches Pilate and he asks to have Jesus' body off of the cross And you know, it's amazing to me that Jesus came off of that cross through the hand of Joseph of Arimathea. Because Pilate most likely could have said, no, this man has been such a troublemaker in Jerusalem, and some people love him and some people hate him. I'm going to keep an eye on this body. I'm going to have my government take him down. No, Joseph, you're not going to take him down. I deny your request because I want to keep an eye on him. And yet I believe that God moves in Pilate's heart to allow Joseph of Arimathea to have that body off of the cross of Calvary. I believe God moved on Pilate. Here's another scripture to write down. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Here's what it says. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. The king's heart is in the hand of God, and God can turn that heart. I believe God turned Pilate's heart so that he allowed Joseph of Arimathea to take Jesus' body off of the cross. But I want you to bear in mind today, in our current government, the heart of our leaders are still in the hand of God. And we need to entrust them to that hand so that God will turn those hearts whithersoever he decides they need to turn. That's what happened with Pilate. And then another man shows up to help. A man whose name you should know very well. His name was Nicodemus. A man that we see in John chapter 3. The man who came to Jesus in secret. The man who came to Jesus after nightfall. He came to Christ in private because he had questions he wanted to ask the Lord. Of course, the Lord taught him the great truths that you read in John 3 throughout particularly John 3.16. But yet now, Nicodemus himself, who came to Jesus by night, steps out in the broad daylight saying, I will assist Joseph of Arimathea in taking the body of Jesus off of the cross. So these two men now, who came to Jesus under the radar and in the dark, now they stand out in bright daylight saying, we want his body. We want to take him down and give him the burial that he deserves. I also want you to remember this. Listen to the Word of God in Numbers chapter 5, verse 2. Old Testament Scripture says this. Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. In other words, anyone in this high holy day of Passover who touched a dead person could not worship at the temple, could not celebrate Passover because they touched a corpse. So I want you to remember that while Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were two outstanding Jews, the moment they touched the body of Jesus on the cross, they could not celebrate Passover. But they touched the very Lamb of God of Passover. They touched the Lamb of God as they took Jesus off of the cross. 
Joseph and Nicodemus quickly prepared Jesus' body for burial. It has to be done by 6 o'clock. And the hours and the minutes are ticking away now. It has to get done before Sabbath begins. And John says Nicodemus provided 100 pounds of spices with which to wrap the body of Jesus. Of course, you know, Jews did not embalm bodies. Egyptians did. Jews did not embalm, but rather they took the corpse, the dead body, and they wrapped it in linen cloths, but as they wrapped it, they put spices in the cloth so as to cover up the odor of decomposition. So Nicodemus brings 100 pounds of spices so that Jesus could be prepared in the linen cloths. Now, the Roman pound is, is less than our pound. By our standards, Nicodemus brought about 65 pounds of spices. Now, that weight is amazing when you think about the way Jews embalmed or rather prepared bodies for burial. The ancient historian Josephus wrote that most bodies that were buried of the Jews, they used one pound of spices for most bodies. If you were a very important person in the culture, they would use up to 40 pounds. And yet, Jesus was provided with 100 pounds in the day of the spices with which to wrap his body. I want you to listen. That 100 pounds from Nicodemus was overly extravagant in taking care of Jesus. Do you see that? There was extravagance in taking care of Jesus. He wasn't thrown on a trash heap. He wasn't treated in an undignified way. He was treated with respect. He was treated with love. He was treated with extravagance. A hundred pounds was unheard of in the day with which to wrap a body. Yet that's what Nicodemus gave to his Savior. I want you to remember also in John chapter 12, Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus toward his own death, pouring perfume on his feet. And the ointment that she used, according to John chapter 12, was worth 300 denarii. In our day, that perfume that she poured onto Jesus was worth at least $20,000. She gave the Lord Jesus Christ her extravagance. She gave him the very best she had. She gave him her life savings when she poured that ointment on his as her Savior. A very, very lavish gift. Scripture is telling you and me, now listen, Jesus is worth our extravagance. Jesus is worth the best we have to give to Him. He's the best we have. Eternally, He's all we have because no one comes to God the Father but by Jesus the Son. He is all we have for eternal life. He deserves our extravagance. He deserves the most lavish things we can give to him. And only John tells us in his gospel that the tomb of Jesus was very, very close to the crucifixion grounds. Just before 6 p.m., less than three hours after Jesus died, Jesus was lavishly, extravagantly, and yet hastily buried before Passover began. The true, final Passover lamb buried before Passover began. 
That's the truth that's pointed out in the Gospel of John. So today, this sermon ends in the twilight of this Friday, in the shock and the disillusionment and the grief that the Savior of the world had died, a dead Savior. But friends, I want to tell you, the story of God is far, far from over. We're only halfway through right now. You need to come back next week. If you're streaming with us today, you need to tune in next week to hear the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would often say, because the story is not yet done. Because we go from grief to overwhelming huge victory, and you can't miss the message. Believer, Jesus gave his all. He gave his life that you and I could have forgiveness and life everlasting and the removal of guilt. Joseph and Nicodemus teach us that in return, we are to courageously and faithfully stand for him. These are two men, remember, who came to him first under the radar and in the dark, and now they're standing out in the light of day saying, He is my Savior, and I want to treat him with dignity. They gave the very best they could in that moment. And you and I are to stand courageously and faithfully for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to give back to him the very best that that we have. We're to give back to our Savior extravagantly. We're to give back to him lavishly because he deserves everything that we own and everything we are. We belong to him. No matter what the rest of the crowd does, no matter what the rest of the crowd thinks, we will stand for Jesus, our Savior. Amen? No matter what the rest of the world thinks, we will stand for Him. We will minister for Him. We will give our lives to Him extravagantly. So today, here's the conclusion of the sermon. Are you giving your best to Him, believer? Are you giving your best to Him? Are you living solely for Him? Are you leading your family to follow him faithfully? Are you teaching your children and grandchildren the truths of the faith? They're going to need those truths to stand on as a foundation for the rest of their lives. Teach those truths to your children and grandchildren. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand for him courageously in your family. Do your talents belong to Christ? Are you using what he gave you in ministry? He gave us the talents that we have so that they might be employed in ministry. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Some of the greatest singers of all time, people who have made millions upon millions of dollars with their voices are going to stand before God, and he's going to say, I'm so disappointed in you. Because you gave a great talent that I gave you, you gave it to the world. And you turned in your talent for millions of dollars, which are now gone, you'll never see them again, and you never served me once. I gave you that talent to serve me. And you wasted it. And what you gain from it is gone. So today, if the Lord has given you a talent, whatever that talent might be, it belongs to Him. Amen? And you're to give it to Him, and you're to plow it in for Him so that others can come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We stand for Him. Are you giving your best out of your storehouse for Him? He calls us to. Well, if not, if not, if you're not giving Him your best yet, If you haven't given out of your storehouse yet, if you haven't entrusted your talent to him yet, when will you start? Friends, I can tell you the best time to start is today, right now, this minute, 
surrender your life to him and say, Lord, you are my Savior. I accepted you as my Savior months ago or years ago or when I was a child, whenever it was. I gave you my life, but today, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. And I'm surrendering to you all I have that you might use it in your kingdom's work. Jesus and Jesus alone deserves the very best we have. Surrender your best to him today. And if you're listening today, here in the sanctuary, you're listening by streaming, and you've never come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've never given him your heart. You don't have a personal, loving, daily relationship with him. Today, you've heard half of the story of your forgiveness and eternal life. Don't miss next week. We're stopping at the halfway point. But today, I want you to hear that Jesus died on the cross. And he literally laid down his life for you, for you. Not for just a world of unnamed faces. He laid down his life for you, for me. Our lives, our name, our face was on his heart when he laid down his life on the cross. And today, you can be saved and you can be forgiven And if you've never been saved before, I'll guarantee you, I know this, I might not have ever seen you before, or I don't know you intimately, but I know this, you're carrying around a load of guilt on your shoulders. I know you are because I carried that same load. I know what it feels like. I know what you carry. But today, through the old rugged cross, Jesus says, if you will come to me as Savior, I took your place on that cross. I was punished in your place. And if you will come to me in faith, I will forgive you by my death on the cross. I died for you And I will forgive you if you'll come to me in faith and ask me to be your Savior, your Lord, your God, your friend, your King. Say yes to me. Surrender your life to me. Give me your heart. Give me your future. Let me be your Savior. Let me walk with you. And today, if you say, Lord Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I need you as my Savior. You are guaranteed that you will be 100% forgiven and saved from your sin. You will never again face it because it will be removed from you. But the other half of your salvation, your eternal life, you're going to hear about that next week as Jesus rises from the grave on the third day. He rises to life so that all of his children and all who believe will have life eternal. That's the purpose and the promise of next week. Everyone needs to be forgiven, and God wants every believer in heaven with him to live eternally. If you've never received him, he's inviting you and he's waiting for you, patiently waiting. Maybe some of us here or maybe someone on stream, he's waited for you for years. And you've heard the message and you've walked away and you've heard the message and you've walked away and you've heard the invitation, but you just didn't think it was time. Today it's time. This is the minute. This is the moment. Give your heart to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Allow him to forgive you. Allow him to save you. And you'll hear the message next week. He also will give you a home in heaven. If you need him, you come. Church home, whatever you need, he meets us here. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, what an amazing message of the Bible. Lord, I, humanly, it's hard to walk away from the pulpit believing that justice was done to your word, Lord. But I pray that you take my human words and you fill them with your divine spirit and you make the message clear and plain. I pray, Father, that every person who's listening today will know that he or she was bought 
at the old rugged cross. The sin can be forgiven. For those of us who are believers, Father, thank you for saving us, for forgiving us. But I pray that this is a moment that we say to you, Lord, I reconfirm my salvation in you and that I surrender my life to you. I surrender everything I have to you, Lord. I want you to use me. I want you to use what I have to bring my family, my world, to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, if there's one here in this sanctuary or one who's listening by streaming, wherever they are, if they're in the house today, I want them to come to the altar and to ask Jesus into their heart publicly. Jesus very publicly died on the cross for me and for each person. Today I pray a public acknowledgement of what Jesus did and accept him as Savior. But Father, if there's someone who is listening by stream today, right here in our country or maybe another country of the world, if they will just bow before you and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to forgive me. I accept you as my Savior. That decision will be just as real as the one that's made in this room. So bless us in these moments, Father. Bless us to surrender. Bless us to give to you extravagantly and lavishly. And bless that one who needs you as Savior. The one who needs a church home. The one who needs a healing. Meet us now. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.